It's a conflict that plays out across every policy area and facet of our economy, from housing to climate change to COVID response. Successive governments have preferenced the wants and needs of the oldest among us, paid for by younger generations who watch their opportunities and optimism shrink. Today on Political Traction, I'm joined by Sean Spear, who has sat on Canada's leading think tanks, acted as a policy analyst for Stephen Harper, and currently teaches at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. In a recent article for The Hub, Sean warns that this imbalance risks opening a rift in our politics with wide-ranging consequences. This is Political Traction. Sean, thanks very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Adam. First of all, congrats to your family on the recent edition. How How is that going? <laughs> it's, it's going fine, thank you. Uh, as you alluded, we... Uh, we now have uh, two boys under the age of two. Uh, our, my wife uh, had a baby on December 29th. His name's William Ernest. And people always told me, Adam, um, that when you had a second, you'd find within you um, a, a source of love that matched your first. And it was sort of hard to think about conceptually because I I, I love our oldest son, EJ, so much. Um, but I can, I can confirm the listeners that it's indeed true. Uh, um, notwithstanding the fact that William is keeping me up at night, I, I love him as much as I loved our older son. And so, yeah, it's a, a little crazy around here, but, um, but we're having a lot of fun. It's such a, it's such a great time. Our, our first is, uh, is two and a half, uh, now. So about the, uh, pretty close in age to your first and, uh, yeah, parenthood really offers a loaded backdrop to the intergenerational issues that, that you wrote about in the hub, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, does your identity as a parent, like, do you start paying more attention to this because you're a parent, do you think? Yeah, I'm sure there's something to that, either consciously or subconsciously, um, that, um, uh, you know, your frame of reference changes, uh, when you become a parent, um, you know, you're, you become definitionally less selfish and more focused on, um, the interest of your children and the future that your children are going to inherit in terms of the economy, in terms of public finances, in terms of the environment, of course. Um, I would say, Adam, though, that that's not the principal reason that I've become interested in this potential of an intergenerational fissure emerging in Canadian public life. The, the main reason is, uh, I don't know about you, but in the aftermath of the Trump election in 2016, and the rise of populism around the West more generally, I started to ask myself if we were going to um, have a form of disruptive politics surface in Canada, what form might it take? Um, uh, you know, we have uh, we have pretty strong public support for immigration, so it seems unlikely that it would manifest itself in kind of anti-immigrant or xenophobic form. Um, uh, our economy is generally egalitarian, at least relative to other jurisdictions. So it probably won't manifest itself in the form of like a Occupy Bay Street movement or something like that. Uh, there are obvious regional fissures that listeners will be familiar with, East versus West, of course, Quebec's place in Canada. Um, but I'm increasingly convinced in part because of some of my own empirical analysis, but also because of uh, polling research that uh, has been done by Daryl Bricker 
at Ipsos and, and elsewhere, um, that there does seem to be a sense of growing discontent amongst um, Canada's younger population. Um, and if, if your goal is um, political and social stability, uh, then I think there's an onus on uh, those of us in and around uh, the world of politics and policy to ask ourselves, how do we um, push back against those trends and um, mitigate the risks of new fissures uh, emerging that could be seized upon by political entrepreneurs, you know, in the name of uh, sowing um, uh, division in our country? My my mind immediately went to the uh, science fiction movie from the 70s, Logan's Run, where uh, anybody over 30 gets uh, get, gets liquidated. Hmm. Uh, Obviously, that's not that's not where you were going, but uh, but what what are we talking about? What happens if we do see a real schism between between young and old? Well, I, I think the risk is um, that an enterprising politician could could seize on those fissures and, in effect, advance a political message and agenda that seeks to pit uh, generations against one another. It's probably not. A political strategy that could make you the next premier of a province or prime minister of the country. Um, but I do think, uh, given some of the economic and social conditions on the ground, it's a, a, a message in a form of politics that would find some resonance. Um, um, and in, in so doing, um, represent a, a, a kind of disruption uh, to the political stability and social cohesion, which it, at least for me, and I know for, for you and the team at Navigator is so foundational to Canada's um, success as, as a country and a society. So, um, you know, if you accept that premise, then the question is, how can we design public policy um, uh, to try to get at some of the economic and social conditions um, that could form the basis of a, a kind of intergenerational conflict um, in, in Canada? And I you know, we can talk a bit about what some of those issues are and and what um, a, a set of policy responses might look like. But I guess just fundamental, if you're if you're surveying the Canadian um, political and social landscape dispassionately, then I I think you 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 have to recognize um, that um, the kids aren't quite all right, and there is an onus on us uh, uh, to 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 try to get at some of the issues that are standing in the way of their uh flourishing yeah i like I, I talk to some of the younger people in the in the office here and in, in my personal life and they their response was well where do you want me to start like it, <laughs> it, it 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 if at the very very high end of the spectrum there's there's housing there's of course there's there's climate which is probably the biggest the biggest uh the biggest issue but then it, it you know it comes right down to and uh, you know underneath all of those things they, they use the word uh, microaggression quite a bit that you know, there, there's all of these generational injustices. It, it, it really does fester, fester underneath the surface of, of so many different aspects of, of, of our culture and, and our economy. Um, I was trying to think the same thing that you, you do. Like, what can we do to stop this trend? How do we mitigate mitigate this and, and make things I guess, more, more equitable across generations? It seems we have such a baked in uh, preferencing towards older generations that any steps we take, I can't think of how to do them in a politically viable way. They're, they're just baked in that any change would be so painful for people above a certain age to be losing their entitlements. How, like, what would that look like? What would that mitigation look like? 
so yeah, there's a ton there in in your your question, Adam. I mean, maybe let's just unpack it a little bit. I mean, there's two things happening. The the first is, as you alluded, um, the structure of Canada's social welfare state um, is such that it it primarily functions as a distribution from working age populations to retirees, and that comes in the form of of uh, direct programs like old age security or the guaranteed income supplement. And it happens uh, more indirectly through the consumption of of public health care. We know, for instance, that um, there's something of a U-shaped curve when it comes to healthcare consumption. We use a lot when we're a baby, like my son, William, and we use a lot uh, as we um, as we uh, uh, become uh, seniors and uh, our health issues um, increase. So there are these ways in which just embedded in our social welfare state, there is, as you say, a kind of preference towards um, older generations. The, 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 the second contributing factor uh, is uh, is politics. Uh, you know, there's a ton of evidence in Canada and elsewhere in the West um, that uh Older voters tend to participate in politics more. Um, they have much higher levels of voter turnout, for instance. And so that creates an incentive for politicians not merely to preserve uh, the, the structure of the social welfare state as it currently exists, but in many ways to uh, only double down on it. So if you think of the last federal election campaign, we had competing promises from the various political parties to effectively increase uh, spending on older Canadians. And so you asked, in light of those factors, what can we do to kind of tilt uh, the the attention and resources of government uh, from the old to the young, given um, the potential political pushback that that, uh, one can anticipate? I don't have a great answer except to say, uh, I hope what I'm doing in this article and in this conversation and elsewhere is making the case that it's in the self-interest of older Canadians to recognize the kind of potential fallout that may that may emerge if we don't start to pay closer attention to the um, interests and aspiration and needs of younger Canadians. You know, you mentioned some already: housing, job precarity, uh, delayed family formation. Uh, you know, concerns around the climate. The list goes on and on. I, I think as a kind of prudential matter, Adam, um, our political class and the and the Canadian public more generally uh, would be uh, wise to start to kind of orient our politics a bit more in the direction of those issues that are animating um, your younger co-workers at Navigator, um, the students that I teach at the Monk School and, 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 and uh, other Canadians across the country. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is just dis disconnection. The fact that we live in separate media spheres, we live in separate cultural spheres. There, there's one uh, popular TikTok video. I'm not a, a, a prolific TikToker, but uh, sometimes when it makes the migration from TikTok to Instagram, I'll I'll, I'll catch it. Sure. And uh, like most people my age, and uh, it was it was we asked uh, we asked boomers uh, how much uh, a house is worth. And uh, it's just showing showing people over over sixty over sixty five uh, listings on Zillow or House Sigma with the the uh, blackout on the uh, on on the price of the price mm. of housing. And it was a joke. It was, it was something that G- Gen Zers were passing around. Like, look at these out of touch nitwits. They they 
you know, people are are looking at five bedroom houses in Oakville, suggesting that they're uh, uh, six hundred thousand dollars when they're probably three times three three times as much. There's there's a it, it's it's not so much in the conversations that I've had with with older people. Um, there's no uh, antagonism there. They don't even realize that 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 there's that that antagonism exists. It's just that they don't understand what the what the economy looks like what the housing market looks like to people yeah, younger than them there's no doubt there's some of that um uh but i i'd say a couple of things in response um the first is there's nothing more aggravating uh than hearing uh older canadians say things like younger canadians are just going to have to um recalibrate their expectations you know right yeah uh it's a bit rich when you're you know when you're standing at the door and closing the door shut and and telling younger canadians that they're just going to have to come to grips with the fact that they um are going to have to work multiple jobs in order to have the same standard of living or they're going to have to reconcile themselves to condo living um or they're going to have to wait until their 40s uh to, to have children so um i guess that's uh, one a long way of saying that I, I do think that um, empathy um, is a kind of crucial ingredient to working through some of these intergenerational um, fault lines. Um, the, the second thing I, I'd say, uh, though, is I, I also think there is a needs to be a recognition, Adam, that um, one of the reasons Canada has been so so successful uh, in its history is generations have been prepared to um take a longer view in terms of uh thinking about their interests and the interests of the country so the, one of the reasons that um um boomers are going to be able to rely on old age security and the canada pension plan is because you know decades ago um uh previous eras um had the kind of foresight um to uh, either establish those programs or put them on a solid financial footing not necessarily in their own interest in some cases um that th those policy decisions actually came with some short-term costs um but it had the kind of long-term benefits that now um older generations in canada are realizing and i would just kind of behoove young older listeners um to 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 kind of apply a similar frame or, or mindset for for thinking about these issues uh you know um, this won't appeal uh, to all of your your listeners, uh, and I recognize that. But one of the kind of most profound ideas in Western political philosophy is uh, Edmund Burke's notion that society is a partnership between those living, um, those who are dead, and those who will come in the future. And if you start to kind of think about policy and politics that way, it may um, tilt against uh the the potential for an intergenerational conflict um and find ways to lay the groundwork for um opportunity and prosperity and flourishing um for future generations i'll stop rambling in a second um but if you use you know if you use that as your frame for how you think about things it's not just housing or the economy um that you would apply to it's also the environment um you know so um I think that idea that we are stewards of our society and we're trying to pass it off to the next generation um, in, in slightly better shape than we found it is a, a good way to um, uh, get at some of the issues that, I, that I've that um, i highlighted in this piece and I, I'm grateful to speak to you about. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so speaking about about climate, existentially, younger people have more of a reason to care about about climate. But it makes me wonder if, in some way, the issue of climate gets framed around the economy in a similar way to how heritage gets framed around housing. That it's something that ostensibly everybody cares about, but in effect, uh, sometimes it can be seen as a front for self-selective protectionism. Yes. That, uh, well, we care about the climate, so we're going to uh, enact these climate saving methods um, when really like the effect is that it, it locks you out of uh, it, it, lock, it, it uh, handicaps growth and economic development in the same way that we can't build more housing because because the uh, heritage and that if you don't care about the climate or if you don't care about heritage, then uh, then you're a bad person and you shouldn't have a, 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 seat, a seat at the table. Is there any risk that the kind of cynicism that that plays in those decision making that, that could turn people against an action, any action on these issues? If listeners are interested, um, Tyler Cowen, you know, the, the American economist, wrote a, a wonderful book uh, a few years ago called Stubborn Attachments, um, in which he makes the case um, that we ought to lower um, the the way we think about the future such that every decision we make today we value its future implications as much as we value the short-term ones. Um, you know, what a profound proposition when you compare it to uh, the way we see our politics playing out today. Now, I'm not naive. I, I worked for a former prime minister. I know that, um, you know, the way we think about costs and benefits um, are necessarily weighted um, based in part on the, the time horizon. But I, I guess that's a long kind of rambling way to say um, I, I, I think it's a cop out to say we can't extend the time horizon of our, of our politics and policy because we have in the past. You know, I, I'd almost be inclined to put it to you: like, how can we push back against the tendency of a twenty-four hour news cycle and social media to create what has been described by some as a narcissism of the now, and get politicians, but also ordinary Canadians. Thinking about um, the, the the future, and uh, let me just make one final point here before I turn it to you. I actually think that if we could tilt our politics a, a bit more in the direction of a future orientation, um, it not only would help mitigate some of the potential conflicts that we've been talking about. I actually think it would give people reason to um, to feel inspired and um and feel a sense of aspiration like one of the reasons i think you see all this polling that tells us that um most canadians don't feel great about the future they're skeptical that their children are going to have better lives than them i think in part because no one is presenting a, a vision of a different and better future um uh you know we're we're stuck in a zero sum fight over the distribution of of resources uh, in the in the short term, and I, actually, I'm, you know, again at the risk of sounding a bit naive, Adam, I, I think a politician that said, "Here is a, a vision for the future," you know, here's how you can see yourself in it. I think he or she would be rewarded. I actually think that Canadians are, um, are would be hugely responsive uh, to a a type of politics like that. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. The fact that no political party in Canada seems to be taking up that opportunity may be a kind of revealed sign that 
that that I'm wrong and they're right. But I it's something I uh, I continue to think is a is a a recipe for not just political success, but actually getting at some of these underlying issues that uh, that we've been. Well, talking I, about. I think you, I think you're completely you're completely right. When when you were talking about the the viability of politicians offering a positive vision of the future, I, it took me a, a few moments to think about where the last time I'd seen that, and I, I think it would have been Trudeau in 2015, uh, be you know offering that 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 positive positive view of the future. He's arguably changed his uh his his demeanor and his his approach and the message that he's given instead of saying sunny ways now it's there there are barbarians at the gate and we need to we need to protect what 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 little we have uh but the most recent race that i saw i, I think this dynamic play out was the last year C, uh, cpc leadership race and i wonder if at least on an aesthetic level polyev versus Sheree you know, a young person telling you that it's okay to be mad versus an old, an older, very wealthy person telling you not to feel mad. Um, that's something, you know, the the David Akins and Gary Masons of the world can't seem to to wrap their their head around. I, I wonder if, like, is is that what we're we're seeing this the, the this this young anger play out? And I, I don't know, maybe. Maybe that is kind of proof that that if you know, assuming that they had done the polling, that that they they made the call that they're they're going out angry with their fists up. Yeah, I, I, I think the CPC leadership can't be understood without applying this generational lens. Um, you know, uh, I um, in fact, I, I think I wrote a column along those lines uh, for the National Post while it was happening that Polyev Polyev wasn't just uh, um much younger than Sheree, he he imbued that youthfulness. He's got a young family, a young dynamic wife. He spoke to issues um that um that resonated with younger Canadians. And you contrast that with Sheree, who I think, you know, is an honorable man and, you know, made a major contribution to the country. Absolutely. Um, but even the way he talked about politics felt like it was oriented towards a, a kind of a an older generation of voters. You know, I'm 40 and I have to tell you, Adam, his message about the 1995 referendum didn't resonate with me. And I can only imagine um, what what that message would have sounded like to young people trying to, uh, you know, overcome, you know, student debt and, and all right. the rest. Um, you asked about, though, if I can just pull back for one second, you asked about this idea of putting forward an aspirational, positive vision of the future. I agree with your point that that was part of the Trudeau magic in 2015. One place that I encourage listeners to check, to turn to as they think about this is um, John Kennedy's speech at Rice University in 1962 about um, the, the, the goal of putting a person on the moon by the end of the, the decade. You can find the speech on YouTube. It's like um, goosebumps uh, uh, in, in, in inducing um, because it it really does have that future orientation. There, there are all of these, you know, as a as a um, someone with uh, with tremendous experience um, in media and advertising and 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 rhetoric. Adam, you you the speech will appeal to you on, on many levels, um, but most people are familiar with the rhetorical flourishes. We do it not because it's easy, but because it's hard and all yes. the rest. Um, but actually, the most compelling section for me is when he talks about all of the different materials and inputs that will go into 
uh, ultimately landing on the moon safely and returning. And he says at one point in the speech, and by the way, a lot of these materials and products don't even exist yet. Um, and yet he's still kind of projecting this goal by the end of the decade and articulating a kind of governing agenda um, that is all oriented towards this audacious, positive sum future vision. And um, I got to tell you, I can listen to that speech kind of on on repeat. And, and then you juxtapose that um, with the politics of today, which just sounds like we have a fixed pie and we're fighting between you know different regions and different generations and young people are kind of left with the table scraps after uh older generations consume most of the uh most of the meatiest portion of the meal and um you, you know as we've been talking about today i think there's an onus on all of us uh to inject our politics with greater ambition if for no other reason um, than as a kind of prudential hedge against uh, uh, um, the type of of widespread anger um, that you were referring to earlier, uh, you know, I I um, I'm tremendously lucky. I you know I have a great life, um, but I speak to students at the monk school uh, for whom owning a home is is basically a, a kind of a, a dream that's um that's unattainable and and um and and I, I think if that comes to manifest itself in a, in our society it could contribute to um a kind of toxic brew of political and social ideas that an enterprising politician could come and kind of take advantage of and so i guess in a nutshell the purpose of my essay was to say Hey, let's kind of orient ourselves to addressing these issues before it's too late. Before we we come to those um, those circumstances. I think we'll leave it there, Sean. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Adam. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zoo Seaton, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.